0: Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of For What It's Earth podcast, the podcast that has a little look at everything nature, climate change, sustainability, and environment, and asks Is there anything that you and I can do to save the planet just a little bit? My name's Emma, and regular listeners will know that right about now, my friend Lloyd normally chimes in. Um, But he's busy uh, being a dad to his new son. Uh, So he's not around this week, unfortunately, but I do hope that you will all hear from him soon. We can catch up on all his new excitement. But this week, I've traded him in for someone else. Um, I had the absolute total joy of catching up with award-winning conservation filmmaker Nina Constable for a fantastic chat about her newest film, which is called Unlocking the Seven. Uh, which is about a massive river restoration project on the River Severn, which I'm going to pop a little link to in the description. You should absolutely go and watch it. It's truly wonderful. Um, And we also spoke about filmmaking and storytelling and engaging people with nature. We both work with Beaver Trust, so of course we talked a little bit about beavers. And towards the end, we explored starting a family and eco-anxiety and all of those good things, as Nina is very excitingly about to welcome her first child, It's absolutely jam-packed, so I do hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Nina, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm
1: good, and yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for making time for me. Today you are, um, well, it's a bit of a mad day for you because you're releasing one of your upcoming films, Unlocking the Seven. So thanks for finding a little bit of time for me to talk about it.
1: Oh, not at all. It's actually, it's really nice to, yeah, to be speaking about something that is so current. It's happening today. I don't know if I've kind of done this before. I've talked about something that is actually happening on the day.
0: Well, it will already be out by the time this makes it into listeners ears. So we're not doing any spoilers, which is quite nice. Um, But before we dive into uh, the state of our rivers in the UK, and particularly the Severn, What one good thing, Nina, have you done for the planet this week? We ask all our guests, and I'm afraid there's no exception. So
1: this, a part of it has been this week. This has also been ongoing. Um, This is going to be baby related because I am having a baby in about five and a half weeks. Congratulations. So soon. So soon. But a really big thing for me has been around not purchasing just loads of new things that I don't need. So basically absolutely everything that i'm kind of getting at the moment and kind of trying to get prepared has been given or lent by friends fantastic it feels really amazing as well because a lot of my friends have babies maybe a year or two before me so they're kind of in this interim period they're lending me things but then they're gonna kind of want them back when they have their next one and so it just feels really just a really nice way of kind of just close
0: circling that that's fantastic. That's so good. I love that it's also going to be like returned back to them as, again for the next baby cycle. So it's just getting constant use. There's no period of time where it's like in someone's loft, just gathering dust. It's just trying to remember who's given me what. <laughs> <laughs> you like a little label system. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, mine, mine is absolutely nothing to do with babies. Um, I had a birthday recently and I went down to the Gower in South Wales in my van for a couple of nights by the coast. And um, went for a walk along Rasili Beach, which is uh, the one that everyone says is absolutely stunning and you should go to. And this plastic bag, like the first thing we saw was this plastic bag just drifted past us. Uh, and I was like, well, we're going to pick up that bag before it, I don't know, strangles something. And um, and the further we got along the beach, the more we just realised it was absolutely chock full of plastic. So we did an impromptu birthday beach clean, which actually made me feel slightly smug but also (laughs) slightly devastated because I was like we have barely made a dent in this beach and we found like a yogurt pot that was still unopened and the yogurt expired in 2001 so it it didn't really it felt like a good thing to have done and I do think that whenever we go out if we can pick up stuff that's a fantastic thing but um yeah it really put into my mind like the scale of how much just stuff is around all the time everywhere um yeah it was a little bit shocking but Sometimes that's good, I think, to drive a bit more. Well, no, have those reminders, isn't it? It's like sometimes when
1: you read something, I think one of the really shocking things that I read recently was about the Winter Olympics and how much water has, I think it's like 50 billion gallons of water has had to be shipped in for them to create fake snow to actually carry out the olympics and it's a dry area and i was you know and you're just like oh my gosh shocking it's so important to be hopeful but then sometimes you read things and you're just a bit like uh, just a bit gobsmacked by it
0: that that has totally shocked me i haven't really engaged with the winter olympics at all but suddenly thinking oh my gosh is there a future of a winter olympics if Mm. our winters are suddenly becoming much less reliable and cold yeah gosh Oh, that's an interesting... What a a horrible but interesting point to start on. just to bring the (laughs) tone down. So let's let's go from the Winter Olympics (laughs) and from dirty beaches to the river, the River Seven. So this is so exciting. You've got your new project. Um, It's launching tonight. It's a beautiful and it's a hopeful film. And it tells the story of the restoration of the River Seven, which is a river that's essentially been really heavily modified by human activity, kind of turning it from a wildlife space into kind of an economic highway. And we've only really recently realised how creating one of these blockades and trying to make it a human space, we've actually ruined the natural flow of the ecosystem. And we've stopped fish from heading upstream where they can spawn and reaching their historic spawning grounds and all of these things. And so it's a really brilliant film having a look at how we're trying to almost undo or remodify the river to allow nature to do what it should be doing. I love it. It's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's presented by Monty Halls, who's great. And uh, there's one, one particular fish is kind of the focus point, isn't it? You kind of you tell the story of the river through this fish, which is the Twate Shad, which I had never heard of before and was almost kind of the point. It was so, It's so at risk, nobody knows about it. So essentially they're kind of removing weirs and creating fish passages so that upstream movement can begin again. So, I mean, I love this film. I spend a lot of time on the River Avon in the summer, anyway, I'm a fair weather paddler. And it's, it's a great place for wildlife, for things like kingfishers and for dragonflies and damselflies. But I don't really spend that much time thinking about what's going on underwater. And and when I think about the weirs, I think, oh, my God, I have to get out of my kayak and then carry it over the weir. I never think, how can a tiny little fish get out up and over this? So if it's annoying to me, I can only... I can't fathom how annoying it must be to a fish. So... I I just think that it's a really cool project to be working on. So what was it about this project and this story that kind of spoke to you and made you think, yes, please, I want to get on board with this?
1: I think to be honest, it's like a number of things that you'd mentioned. I'd never heard of this fish called the twate shad, Mm. but also the significance of the fact that this particular fish couldn't get upstream, the impact that that has on the kind of wider ecosystem. And the fact that this project unlocking the Seven had this huge amount of funding that was essentially focusing on this basically unheard fish and allowing it passage back up to its historic spawning grounds, and it just seemed like such a humble story in some ways, but also an absolutely epic one in terms, of, mm. like in real terms of the word, with the civil engineering that is involved in allowing the fish back up the river but also I think a really big thing with the project is that they're not totally undoing all of the engineering works that have been done historically they're finding ways to work alongside it so they're not totally destroying all of the weirs some of them they're taking away the smaller ones or they're putting like rock ramp ramps in but in some places the weirs themselves are remaining, but they're creating these huge fish passes alongside it so that humans and wildlife can, you know, coexist in a modern way. And I think there were just so many things about it that I just, I was totally fascinated by it, but also the passion of the people working on the project. There's um one of the scientists, Charles Crundwell, is really interested in the history and just finding out that the Twait Shad actually used to be this really famous fish that in the kind of 1800s it would be the fish that kings and queens would feed to foreign visitors. Oh, really? Yeah, because it's kind of like a herring, I think, to eat, um, but a bit bigger. And yeah, it would just, but then it just gradually started to disappear as all of the weirs went up until that we actually thought they totally disappeared from right. the river. And then they found this remnant population. And then that remnant population was the kind of the trigger, I think, to be like, right, we do still have this fish before we totally lose it. Let's try and restore its habitat. And I just think, yeah, it's just an amazing story. And I think at that time, so it was four years ago now that I first started working on it. And I think it was definitely one of the bigger projects that I'd worked on. And so a kind of a challenge for me as well and working with the presenter it was a different way of working so there were just lots of things that really appealed to me um yeah
0: I think and something you just touched on there as well one thing that is really cool about the film and the project is that it does have a huge scope for connecting with heritage and communities and that's that's not always the case when it comes to kind of conservation or restoration projects is it yeah exactly
1: like the local community buy-in and contribution is a really big part of it. It, They didn't want to kind of wade in and tell local people what they can do with their local environment. They've wanted to engage them, involve them, find out what it is that you know they would like to contribute towards or what they would like to kind of see their local environment looking like. And so that has been a huge part of it has been the volunteer aspect. And I I always think that's amazing when Mm. you know you've got a good story or a good project when you've got thousands of people giving their time to it for free and that yeah absolutely
0: and it's such a big part I think about making kind of nature restoration or giving nature restoration legs for the future I think is is making sure like you said the community buy-in and having people on board and excited about it ready to championing it and to support it and I think it's also a really cool tool for like connecting those local communities with nature and with their local patch because we all know that the more we connect with nature, the more likely we are to do you know pro-environmental behaviours, um, and also it's just phenomenal for our mental health, our well-being, and our general happiness. The more we connect with each other and with community and with nature, and I think the scale of this project is mad. Like like you said, the people involved, the schools that have managed to come and be part of this project, catching people. From a young age, getting them into fish and rivers, it's brilliant. Um, But actually, on scale, (laughs) the first thing that comes to my mind when I say the word scale is the size of those fish passes blew my mind. I'd seen a picture, I think, maybe on your Instagram or on um, the Seven Rivers Trust Instagram of one of these fish passes before it filled up with water. And I just saw these really big concrete structures. And honestly, I was like, what what on earth am I looking at here? This makes no (laughs) sense to me. And then (laughs) seeing the film, it makes perfect sense. You put it all into context. But I thought that a fish pass would basically be like a kind of ladder above and over the weir or like a series of little pools that the fish could jump through. But it is a massive feat of civil engineering. You've basically got these huge trenches that go alongside the weir. They kind of bypass it almost with these concrete blocks in that, that slow the water down. But still allow the fish to navigate through without actually having to jump over a weir, and and they're like one of them was like a hundred meters long, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and oh, I can't remember how. Old. I think it's like twenty meters deep or something. And seeing Monty Hall's reaction to it when he first sees sees it because he had the same assumption, that he, and I was the same. You know, like a fish pass. You know, you've seen eel ladders. You've seen. You know, you kind of have in your head what it's going to be, and then this is just this monumental piece of engineering but that was a really I think the depth of it was a really important part of them having this viewing gallery downstairs Mm. so that people could go down and actually see into like this lens into the river and see all the fish passing so that they could really engage because at that part of the river you know it's running really fast and you're not going to be snorkeling or swimming in there but for you know the volunteers for the children for just local people to be able to go down and just see the fish successfully passing through it's just it's just amazing to be able to see below the surface and i yeah. think it is the deepest vertical slot fish pass in England and Wales oh wow
0: I think. yeah
1: so it is and i think the viewing gallery is a part of part of that as well but um
0: Oh, it's amazing! I I saw it and thought, how do I go? Um, are they doing tickets? Can I just turn up? I, I'm like, it's one thing using underwater footage and working with underwater cameramen to, to bring these images of under a river into viewers' homes and screens, but to actually be able to go down and be next to or sort of feel like you're inside the river yourself. Oh, it's amazing! What a, what a great idea to have this this kind of hole, this window into what's going on in the fish pass. And and not just for visitor engagement as well. Of course, it's a brilliant tool for the researchers to be able to see what fish are hanging out and whether these twait shad are um, actually using the pass. absolutely brilliant. One thing I was going to ask you is whether, you know, you've worked on a huge range of films, um, notably recently with Beaver Trust and, you know, really charismatic, amazing creatures. Is it hard to create a film like in the early stages when you're planning okay i'm going to create a film about a fish which is probably quite hard to film or like or a river and a whole kind of landscape ecosystem is it is it harder or like how do you approach that storytelling differently i think it it definitely has to be more collaborative because i
1: am not an underwater camera operator until it was working with um other people. But it was also, I think, knowing that this was going to be over a long period of time as well. It was just really thinking about how to tell this story in an engaging way. And so having time-lapse cameras up that Mm. showed the kind of the movement of the river. And you can see, you know, like the, um, when it floods, one of the time-lapse cameras actually got totally submerged. Oh, wow. You know, everything goes brown, but somehow it survived. Um, But I think it was just employing different people and different techniques than I might have otherwise to really try and capture the scale and the passage of time I think that was a big part of it but Mm. again I always say this I think one of the things with the type of filmmaking that I do is that I always feel like a bit of a fraud when people refer to me as a wildlife filmmaker because I think that lends itself more to like capturing animal behaviour whereas The work that I do is more to do with people's interaction with nature and Mm. people that are working to conserve or protect a species or a habitat. And I think because of that, actually, for me anyway, it's very similar to the other stories that I'm telling, where you've got these people that are absolutely passionate and dedicated to protecting whatever it is that they're kind of dedicated to. And this was the same with this story. And so for me, it's the people that are kind of the eyes through which we're telling the story Mm. and so similar in that way but then yeah just this kind of big expanse of time that meant that different camera techniques were needed.
0: I think that's really important though bringing the the people into these stories because they are leading the charge on it and also I think shining a light on the positive work that people are doing it makes me feel a bit more hopeful about the future because we know that a lot of the damage that's been done to nature has been done by people. So being able to show that actually not everyone is villainous and a lot of people are dedicating their entire lives to doing something positive, like unlocking many, many kilometres of a river um, to allow that ecosystem to restore, I, I, think that's, I think that's wonderful. And so I suppose that, that makes you a conservation filmmaker rather than a wildlife filmmaker. Is that how you would more position yourself?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's more... Honest about (laughs) wildlife.
0: Although we do, we do love a bit of wildlife. Well, (laughs) (laughs) written wildlife, and I would not say no to going and
1: sitting in a hide for however many months filming animals. (laughs) What
0: would would be the dream if you were given unlimited budget and unlimited resources? What would you want to go make a film about?
1: God, there's so many things that I would like to see and like to, yeah, like to capture. Um, there's one particular story that I've been interested in for quite a long time that's about the cork oaks in Portugal Ooh. and kind of the whole ecosystem that relies on that and again that is a kind of it's a people and a wildlife story because I think it's the most um, the cork oak farming
0: is the most sustainable agriculture or practice in the world wow and they're incredible this is where they kind of peel off the bark of a certain type of oak and then we use that to essentially stopper wine bottles
1: yeah exactly and then but then also there have been a lot more kind of uses of the material in in you know like flooring or it's used in mm. or it's used as an alternative for leather it's just oh. a sustainable material and if you harvest them correctly it just grows back but also especially with changing climate as well it's fire retardant the cork is and so oh right yeah you get these kind of dry summers and you know there's the um, potentially wildfires and things Mm. I don't know if they're totally fireproof but um, they have fire retardant properties but it's also the entire habitat that and the species that rely on it it's just this really beautiful kind of circular story that involves people but also really interesting animal behavior as well.
0: So one of the if if we're going to just circle back to rivers one of the things we like to do at Fortis Earth is Uh, And in in keeping with telling the human stories and engaging people with nature and issues, if we try and um, provide at least some kind of advice or hints or tips as to whatever issue we're talking about. So if I ask you, when it comes to protecting our rivers as individuals, what springs to mind for you? I think it's reconnecting
1: with them and reconnecting with what's below the surface. I think like we were saying about the viewing gallery, Mm. so easy to look at a river walk alongside it think it looks beautiful um but actually there's a one there's a lot sort of life below the surface that you might not be aware of but also i think it's 80% of our rivers are deemed as in a shockingly poor state mm. understanding that and then i think one of the big things is understanding our accountability for the fact that you know it's drinking water it's sewage it's mm. all of these things and it's writing to your MPs and understanding that that could have an impact. Yes. Equally, if that's not the kind of, you know, lots of people don't like to be confrontational or don't like to do that. It's volunteering. If you've got a local river nearby, I'm sure that your local wildlife trusts or rivers trust will offer volunteering opportunities and whether that's helping with citizen science or whether that's, you know, cleaning up your rivers, there will be things that you can get involved in. And I think that helps you to, kind of garner a sense of pride and i think mm. you know if you feel really proud about an area you're more likely to want to kind of fiercely protect it so i think mm. that would be my recommendation or do you like sophie did in our upcoming film and
0: get your snorkel on jump in and <laughs> really have a good look around <laughs> this, is, this is on the edge with beaver trust let's give that a little plug that'll be coming yeah. out soon
1: Yeah, um, end of April is going to be the release date, I think. I'm Um, very much looking
0: forward to this. Because you you won so many awards as well for Beavers Without Borders, your first film with Beaver Trust. I honestly can't wait to see what you've done, what's next. And this is, we weren't even supposed to talk about this, but I'm going for it. This (laughs) is more of like a landscape scale look at rivers. So keeping a theme with this episode, but it's more of a landscape scale look at uh, uh, particularly buffer zones, isn't it? kind of the edges of rivers, hence the name, and how... When we're talking about river restoration, we are not just talking about the water that's flowing through the valley. We're talking about all of the land around the side of it, the kind of the whole catchment and everything that it relies on um, that catchment area.
1: Yeah, and also just right from the very beginning, you know, from the source of the river where it starts and it's clean and as pure as it's going to get. And then all of the stuff that's kind of chucked at it as it makes its way kind of out into the estuaries and to the sea, but it's, yeah, it's essentially about giving space back to nature and not pushing everything kind of right to the very edge. Um, So, yeah, I'm really, it's quite, uh, this one was an interesting one because with Beavers Without Borders, there's a cute fluffy beaver at the centre of the story. I mean, not everyone thinks that they're cute, but generally you've kind of got this um quite charismatic creature at the centre of the story, whereas this one, the concept is about this buffer zone. And so I don't know if it's as easy a sell, but there are some incredible people in there. And one of the hardest things was cutting down some of the interviews, you know, from two hours down to kind of four or five minutes. Oh, gosh, yeah. And just because some of them I could listen to all day. And Mm. it's like, this is really interesting.
0: This is what's relevant for the film. So, Do do you ever get tempted to do like a second version that's an hour long just for... Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Just for my own viewing, probably. (laughs) Absolutely. Secret screening, get a a screen up in the garden, let people in. (laughs) Direct personal (laughs) cut. Yeah, people would love it. I'd sign up for that. Talking about comms and filmmaking, there are so many people producing content, which is not a bad thing. But how do you, particularly as people are both becoming more interested in the natural world... And becoming amateur filmmakers simply by having a mobile phone in their pocket. How do you avoid just shouting into the void with your communications? How, you know, what what are your thoughts on actually being able to create content that is impactful as well as beautiful? It's not just content for content's sake, you know. Yeah. Well, I think in some ways it's it's a really amazing thing
1: that filmmaking. As a whole, has become basically democratized. You know, everyone's got a mobile phone that they can film something on, and it's a really amazing way of connecting communities of people, especially online and on social media. But I think that that often we underestimate our audiences, and there's lots of people making short-form content that is great and highlighting certain things, but it's very short. They're kind of it's almost like headline material, mm. and I do believe that a story like the River Store, the Seven Rivers Trust, or you know, stories I'm telling for the Beaver Trust, you can hold an audience's attention for 15, 20 minutes, even an hour. And that's where my focus is. And there's always that um, temptation to kind of churn out a bit more, especially with social media, that kind of feeling that I should be doing more and oh, I should do this, I should do that. And then I just have to be like Nina. That's not your job. That has to come second. There are only so many hours in the day. Exactly. And that has been, I think it's very easy to get drawn into that and feel like you should be doing more. Uh, but then that's when I think I have found myself having to have a bit of a word with myself. And, sh- and I've been guilty of kind of shouting to avoid, probably, and just being like, oh, I should make a reel about this or I should do this. And then it's like, no, do you know what? Just be patient, step back, focus on your job and then when the film comes out hopefully it will speak for itself yeah and so i think it is it's having that self discipline to just step back from that and block it out and i actually like while i've been editing the beaver trust film i've not really been doing any social media in the week at all and just on a friday kind of having a bit of a recap of the week and that's been a really good thing for me to just have that kind of boundary in place mm. to really give the work the time that it needs
0: yeah especially with social media everything's so fleeting that even if you jumped onto or created a moment it's gone it's gone so quickly whereas the work that you're doing you're putting you know your life and soul into it for a significant period of time and the thing that you create lives on in a useful space and in a useful way um, but i do i do i do see and feel that pressure sometimes being on social media you see everybody else doing loads of things and you think, oh, should I be engaging with social media in this way as well? And then the moment you, st- or personally, the moment I try and start thinking about what it is that I would post, instead of being, I've done something cool and I will post because I've done something cool, the moment you start thinking about it from a, oh, I really should be, a you know, I feel obliged to be doing something or commenting on a, a new story that's come up in the kind of space that people know I normally talk about, suddenly this pressure is just, it's overwhelming and it can, it can be a real weak ruiner. And I, and I'm starting to, um, honestly, I'm starting to resent social media in some ways. I don't think I'm ever going to leave it because it has been a brilliant place for me to meet wonderful new people and see what, what other people in a similar space to me are doing and talking about. Um, but the, the, the pressure of it is just, it's just absolutely nuts. So I, I really like your idea of just stopping and then having, like you said, like a Friday, just being your day where you're like, okay, well, I'm to dip my toe back in. I'll see what's up. or will catch up on all the nonsense. I'll I'll stay plugged in, but I'm not fully going to spend a lot of time shouting into the great void. I like that a lot. Yeah. Speaking of challenges, I don't know, maybe that's a tenuous link. (laughs) I'm wrapping my way around saying you have a whole new challenge and adventure on the horizon for you in the form of baby on its way. Huge congratulations. How are you feeling about becoming a mum? Honestly, I'm really,
1: really excited. Um, I just... I feel like I've got quite a lot to do before I get there. <laughs> so it's this thing where I kind of, I can't wait to meet them. But at the same time, I want them to hold on <laughs> as long as possible so that I just feel prepared. But I think I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about just introducing them to the natural world. One of the things that I feel I've just been kind of gazing, daydreaming about is um because the due date is the end of March. We're going to be coming into spring. And then wonderful think, times we've gone no uh, just thinking of taking it's a, it's a boy by the way <gasps> Oh, so, <laughs> taking him out for kind of early morning walks to hear the dawn chorus and just thinking of spending time you know for me usually summer is the busiest time of year it's when filming opportunities are the best and I've got this summer that is going, is going to be very very different but I still want, want it to be embedded and engaged in nature and just to be sharing that with this tiny little person um I'm yeah I'm really excited about it
0: and I would I I mean I don't have I don't have children but I'm going to imagine that you'll suddenly see nature through a whole new lens and set of eyes and that will probably deepen your connection to the natural world as well by having this little bundle of excitement and and like you said you know taking them out into the garden and by the end of the summer they'll kind of be up and engaging and um like aware of things and you know you can talk to them about plants and play with mud and like do things as simple as go looking for worms which you would never I assume normally do on your average Saturday but suddenly that'll become so joyful and amazing
1: yeah oh honestly sharing it with them and again in, in the talk that I went to last night the Gordon Buchanan talk he showed his favorite moment from nature and it was sharing snorkeling and seeing a basking shark with his son and I just got this like overwhelming kind of just I can't even describe the feeling just because my boyfriend's a marine biologist and he works on he's studying bluefin tuna but he's not a lot of work with basking sharks as well but he's just loves the sea so much whether it's surfing snorkeling just being in it and I just had this kind of oh, I don't even know like overwhelming feeling of just excitement of their interaction together in nature and just thinking of him taking um, taking him out and sharing his love as well and that passion. And, you know, ten, they might
0: hate it, but <laughs>
1: we can try. Highly
0: unlikely for <laughs> parents such as you two, I would imagine. Um, but, I mean, that baby is, is going to be so well set up for the most amazing nature experiences and just love for the natural world. That's that's a very hopeful... About. I was yeah. like I'm going to the Beaver project and the Seal Sanctuary and You can take him to Chris's place. I know, honestly, I just had
1: this feeling of like there being a beaver there and having the baby just being like
0: Oops. So are you are you taking time time off work throughout of the summer just to focus on this new adventure?
1: Yeah, I am. It was definitely I wasn't quite sure how I was gonna feel about it and how it would fit in with my work. And I've definitely been anxious about it, but I I have decided that I'm going to take six months fully off. Nice. In a way, I mean, I might take photos and I might, you know, get my camera out, but not for any commissions. But what's been, when I finally made that decision, what was really nice about that was then collaborating with another local filmmaker called Gemma Waring, who started with me um, doing work experience and has become a kind of fully-fledged absolutely amazing filmmaker in her own right and it just feels really lovely to be collaborating with her and then when I you know when I do come back to work you know hopefully there'll be things that
0: we can work on together Mm. and I know that she'll do the most amazing job so I mean what are your thoughts if you don't mind me asking um around kind of deciding that like now is the right time for you to start a family with with balancing a career as well, a career that you are brilliant at and you clearly absolutely love and is a huge part of who you are. Because I feel like, I mean, a lot of my friends are starting families at the moment and I'm very excited for all of them, but I feel like we're constantly at this age exposed to lots of like, women can have it all messages these days, but I personally still have this fear of starting a family and losing elements of, the work that I'm trying to build for myself and I don't know if you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah it's definitely something that I've thought about and probably why it's taken me longer than it has friends of mine you know lots of my friends have had babies like started a few years ago and at that point I don't think I had confidence maybe that I would find work afterwards or that I would be able to find the right balance or I wasn't I was too selfish really to Want to consider anyone else. I just wanted to be able any opportunity I'd just wanted to be able to jump at. And then it got to a point where I started thinking about kind of how my future would look and whether that was with or without children. And over the last few years I've realized that it is something that I would really like to do and something that I would like to do out of hope for a future generation that will work to protect and conserve our planet. But then it was just working out how I felt that would fit in. And I think there has to be an acceptance. I'd be lying to myself if I thought I could just go back to exactly how things have been. Mm-hmm. There will be things that I might not be able to do and it will be more restrictive. But in some ways, I feel like when I am working on those projects, it's going to be with a kind of renewed vigour and there will be another purpose for me to do that job mm. better than I might have done before and I probably will do do less um I think realistically but then also I have
0: just worked, overworked probably for the last you've had a good th- run be you've been full on your output is mad so yeah to actually kind of
1: and maybe consider things not that I don't consider the work that I do but I definitely but like learning to say no to things is something that has taken me a very long time and it's still few and far between when I just mm. say, actually, no, this is too much. I'm going to have to say no to certain things. And it just means that everything that I'm working on will probably be that little bit more considered. So I think that's my approach, but also it's just something that I've got no idea how I'm going to cope. That's true. Yeah. I hope that I find a healthy balance. That is my hope. And that is what I'm going to aim for. <laughs>
0: I think that's all anyone can hope and aim for. I think that sounds very level-headed going into what's going to be an amazing year. And um, I mean, I can't can't really not touch on this, and I hope you don't mind me asking. But when we're talking about children, and you and I both in the environmental space and the communication space, I mean, would you be happy to kind of chat about your opinion about all of this noise that we're exposed to? When we're considering starting families, about the environmental impact of having children and starting families, like, did that weigh on your decision at all? Do you think it's even fair to, to have this pressure being put on women or family who you know, want to lean into this natural instinct to have a family? And then we're kind of, I mean, I don't know about you, but I often feel a little bit like almost shouted at by the media that it's my responsibility not to, which is not something I personally agree with. But I mean, it's a, it's a whole other layer, isn't it, to this this big decision that you're already making? Definitely. And I think
1: it's an important thing to consider and I think the conversation is important to have. But at the same time, I think it's something that you have to be very careful to not make people feel guilty about mm. choices they make. And this is one of the things that is online communities are so powerful and especially for me during lockdown the online environmental and conservation community was one that really made that period of time something so much better to have this connection with other people and to build on that. But then at the same time, there is a pressure within that community to not be a hypocrite and to live your life totally environmentally friendly. Friendlyly, that's not a word.
0: Um, I'm here for it, and I get it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and.
1: And there can be a lot of guilt that goes along with that. And I think we have to accept in some ways that we will all be hypocrites Mm. in some way. But actually, there are these huge life decisions that you can't make those decisions based on a feeling of guilt because you feel like you shouldn't do something because you're going to be judged by other people. It has to be a decision that is properly thought through, absolutely. But you also, have to think about your own mental health what's important to you and I think with things like having children it's also really looking at the facts and really looking at the impact because you can be told that having a child this will be the carbon footprint and this will be you know how many gallons of water it's relative to or that kind of thing but actually that discounts the good that that human being Mm. can do for the planet. It doesn't take any of that into account. And I think that's really important. And if the entire, you know, conservation, wildlife community decided not to have children, I think that would be almost a lost generation of human beings that would have
0: fought to protect our planet. Mm. That's kind of where I'm coming from. No, I like that. I I really appreciate you talking about this because... I feel like I'm in a very similar camp to you. I mean, minus the fact that I'm I'm not having a baby, but just in the thought process of I don't like the layers of guilt that are placed on individual responsibility, not just with having a family, but with, with most decisions, we're not really living in a society that is built for us to easily and conveniently and not at great expense live a totally green life. We simply can't do that. But a lot of the narrative is you have to do everything within your power potentially risking having a really miserable time of it, like you said and risking your mental health and your happiness in this one life that we have to do what you can for the planet for the greater good and I do believe that individual responsibility in some contexts is great and that we can do a lot but like you said sacrificing everything for that ideal and leaning into that that guilt I just I just don't think with something like saving the planet I don't think that guilt is the right mechanism to be doing that absolutely and I love I love your your kind of narrative of well, listen, I'm going to have a baby and it's going to be green and it's it's going to be an eco warrior. And to be honest, you as a parent, like you said, when you're, when you're told, okay, a baby equals X amount of water. Not all babies equal the same amount of water. Not all lifestyles are the same. You have so much control over what you do and don't do with your child. Sure, if you were flying that baby to preschool every day in a different country, that is entirely different to you know growing your own vegetables in the garden with them and eating locally and traveling by bike to preschool down the road in the nearest village I mean that's clearly my dream that's (laughs) that's (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's 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 just it's just for for me it's such a I mean it's such an emotional it's such a divisive and it's such a a problematic topic sometimes to talk about but I appreciate thank you for chatting with me about it because sometimes I feel like I can't speak to some of my friends that are having children that maybe aren't quite so eco-minded as me because I don't know how to approach the subject without... Because I, I just want to talk about it to make myself align my thoughts. But I don't want to bring it into other people's spaces in case they think that I'm adding to their guilt, which I really don't want to be doing. Yeah. It's such a, such a strange thing to kind of sit down and be like, hey, here are my fears, but yeah. I don't want, I don't want to put them on you. I just yeah. want to discuss them. It's quite hard.
1: No, definitely. Okay. And I think it is that it can be a very sensitive subject as well, and I think that's the thing. It's just not making people feel vilified for choices that they've made that are really important to them. but yeah, I think being open to to that conversation is it's important for people to hear the other side because i I do think sometimes as well that because people feel guilty about something. I don't really want to talk about it and you know the kind of the vegan conversation as well I know lots of people that aren't vegan or vegetarian but feel like they should be because that's you know the kind of the space that they're in and so it's just something they can't talk about but again that's something that I think is so important to offer another side as well and I hands up I'm not vegetarian but my boyfriend rears pigs with a friend and so we have you know bacon from that pig and then we get the Cornwall Wildlife Trust beef box you know it's all grass-fed beef on the lizard and these places where the cattle are actually managing the landscape and you you have to slow down you have to plan better but it is that alternative and I think it's sometimes you know what people assume that I'm vegan because of the the sphere that I work in mm, and same here. I feel a bit like oh god actually no I um I had spaghetti bolognese last night with some meat in it but then it's kind of that but actually it was this is where I got the meat from and it's just you just have to be slower and better organized if you want to eat meat in a way Mm. not kind of destroying the planet but it's yeah again it's one of those kind of tricky conversations that assumptions are made or pressures are put on and you kind of feel like oh should I just say yeah yeah, I'm vegan I can
0: I completely feel that sometimes I've been out with with for dinner with people who aren't vegan or vegetarian but know that I'm in this space they know that I make half a living talking about environmental issues and I'll have like a burger because I'm really craving one and they'll be like hmm (laughs) <laughs> for the falafel burger and you're like no do you know what uh, um today i will like to eat this at least i know it's come from the farm down the road but i think what i think the, the topic of veganism um is an interesting if we throw it back to what we we're talking about when we we're talking about shouting into the void like reducing your meat consumption is the headline and that's the small part that travels through society really quickly and everyone attaches to and then understanding the conversation is the documentary that's what you're working on that kind of thing actually looking further into that Looking at the benefits of regenerative agriculture and looking at the fact that if you stop eating chicken, but you're having seven avocados a week that are being flown in from Brazil, where people are having wars about water, like that's not, it's not cut and dry. And I think that uh, maybe, maybe we should make a film about that. That would be fun when you're back from maternity leave. Yeah. Everything has so many layers to it. I think one of the major challenges of what you and I do in the space of talking to people about being better with the planet is trying to work out which bits of those nuance are most important to be the headline, but just get people to think two or three times about the stuff that they're doing and reconnecting with everything.
1: Absolutely. That's it. It's looking beyond the headline, isn't it? I think that's the big thing. It's not just regurgitating to other people. Something that you have just seen a headline of, it's investing your time in understanding and reading that story so that you can have a proper conversation around it.
0: Wow. Well, listen, I mean, we have flown through um, what feels like a million topics today. Thank you so, so much. Best of luck with Unlocking the Seven coming out. It's coming out tonight, but I'll put a link in the description of the episode so that everybody can watch it because it will be out by the time the episode comes out. So best of luck launching that. Where can people find more from you, even though you've told us you're not really on social media anymore?
1: (laughs) Well, I definitely am there. (laughs) It's not in the week. I'm not as busy. But um, Nina Constable Media is my social media handle across kind of all platforms. And then I also have a website that is ninaconstable.co.uk and that is updated when I have time.
0: But it does have um, most of my films are on there and all free to watch as well. And I, I heart, like completely recommend just spending an afternoon or a weekend going through your entire back catalogue because they're beautiful and you'll learn things. And I think what I like most about your work is I always come away with a sense of hope, um, whereas some documentaries can be a bit kind of doom and gloomy um so absolutely everyone go and do those and actually while you're here i'm going to throw a little plug forward as well to the beaver trust podcast the lodgecast we've mentioned beaver trust maybe once or twice (laughs) um because you've been a fantastic guest on their upcoming series as well in fact you're our season finale guest so if you want even more from nina um i'll pop a link into the lodgecast go make sure you subscribe to that for more lovely ear food i don't know how to describe podcasts (laughs) conversational ear food nina thank you so so much Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Cool. Listen, I have to admit, I felt both tired and buoyed after that conversation. Tired because we covered a lot of things. uh, And I think some of the kind of topics that we spoke about involved a little bit of brain dredging, which can sometimes be a little bit exhausting. But buoyed because not only is Nina one of the nicest people I have ever had the pleasure of chatting to. Um, she's just she radiates hope and all that is good about the world and I'm really excited to see where the next uh, leg of her journey takes her and I just know she's going to be the most amazing mum to this this child whose destiny is to be one of the most amazingly nature-connected children I think so I, I do hope that you found something in there that was useful and relevant to you we did hop around the topics and speaking of topics I don't know perhaps that's another terrible tenuous link I need Lloyd back um we have of course got a back catalogue of over 70 now different episodes covering different topics from me trying to make soil sexy to lloyd and i trying to work out how to make our home renovation projects a little bit more eco-friendly so if you're new here hop on back make sure you're subscribed and go and enjoy some of our other episodes and you can also find us on social media we're on facebook and instagram at for what It's Earth podcast and we're on twitter at what Earth Pod. And you can also email us at forwhatitsearthpod at gmail.com. So let us know what one good thing you've done for the week. I absolutely love reading them. It makes this whole thing feel worth it. Uh, And also gives me great ideas. And we'll give you a shout out on the episode or on social media. You can review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify these days. Uh, If you've liked it, that goes a really long way in helping us. We're a small independent production. Uh, So that would be much appreciated. And without further ado, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, We'll see you soon.